Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three relatively new films. Not all of them are brand new, but many of them have come out over the last six months. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Operation Varsity Blues. Uh, the, The subtitle of this movie is The College Admission Scandal. And this details the 2019 college admissions bribery scandal, which sent a lot of wealthy white people to prison for a short amount of time. And they did that because of a man by the name of William Rick Singer who organized this scheme where he had people, uh, rich people mainly, pay him a vast amount of money to guarantee their admission into certain top schools. Not all of these schools were Ivy League, but you probably know the story from the papers. Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, is a Netflix original. It premiered on Netflix on March 17th, and this is probably the definition of a docudrama in that it is a documentary in the sense that real people who are either involved in the scandal or who analyze the scandal are interviewed here, but it's a drama in the sense that Rick uh, Scott in this movie, excuse me, Rick Singer, I want to get the name right, is played by an actor. In this case, he's played by Matthew Modine. And Matthew Modine has been around for quite some time, and this is probably his best role in years. You probably know him best uh, for for playing the role of Private Joker in Full Metal Jacket, and he's been in several other movies, mostly in supporting roles since then. This is, I think the first movie since Full Metal Jacket where he has played the lead role. And this movie does intersperse uh, real footage of Rick Singer with Matthew Modine playing Rick Singer. And even though the differences are there in terms of Matthew Modine's appearance compared to the real-life Rick Singer, Matthew Modine does an amazing job echoing Rick Singer. And basically, the phone conversations that Matthew Modine has in this movie with other people who are playing the one could say victims, but I don't want to call them victims because a they're privileged and B they knew exactly what they were getting into when they worked with Rick Singer. But the amazing thing about this is the phone conversations that Matthew Modine has with some of these people who are bribing him to get their children into elite colleges are actually based on real-life transcripts from the FBI who wiretapped uh, Rick Singer's phone when this whole thing was going on. The documentary does not explain how the FBI became aware of Rick Singer's operation and how they brought themselves to actually tap his phone. But I think that you are going to be so awestruck by these phone conversations to even really care about that detail. I know I certainly was. And I, 
the whole 2019 college admissions bribery scandal got me incensed. I wasn't necessarily mad at the the people who took part in it, like Lori Loughlin or Felicity Huffman, both of whom got a very, very minuscule amount of prison time for their uh, role in the scandal. I was just really annoyed by the school's part in um, getting into Rick Singer's scheme. Because some of the things that Rick Singer says to these people over the phone is offensive, in addition to the fact that he is basically telling these people, not in these exact words, mind you, but he's saying, I am going to fudge the details of your child's operation by doing A, B, and C. And I was initially incensed when the movie alleges that Rick Singer actually took white students' applications and checked off that they were minorities. Like, for instance, probably the largest minority, which arguably a white student could get away with, they shouldn't, but in theory they could, is are you Hispanic or non-Hispanic? And Hispanic on some of these um, applications does include being from Spain. And Spain is a largely Caucasian country, and there's really nothing wrong with the colleges counting Spain as Hispanic. What is wrong is when somebody checks off the Hispanic box and they don't have any Latin American or Spanish ancestry. But that's one of the underhanded things that Rick Singer did. But there was another part that made me especially angry at Matthew Modine in this movie. That's not taking away from Matthew Modine. He did an excellent job acting in this movie. I'm really angry at Rick Singer for actually having this conversation with some of the parents. So there are some accommodations that certain testing companies take for people who are not as academically inclined as other people. And these are provisions that test-making companies like the Princeton Review take with good intentions. And what Rick Singer actually told some of these parents was, was to have their child, A, say they have a learning disability when they didn't, and B, and I quote, when taking the test, act slow, end quote. Oh, that, that just made me so angry listening to this, but this is all true. These are things that the real Rick Singer actually said, and I have not even scratched the surface of some of the things that Rick Singer did. Now, Rick Singer definitely deserves to be punished for organizing this scheme. The reason he did not get in as much trouble as some of these other families who bought into the scheme was that he was caught by the FBI and he complied with the FBI's demands to get these other parents to fess up to what they did. So basically, other than the FBI, there are really no winners in this scheme. And it also really makes you think about the state of secondary education in this country, particularly amongst 
elite schools, not just the Ivy League schools like Harvard or Yale, but also some other prestigious universities, particularly USC. And while this college admissions bribery scandal was going on, I was alerted to another meaning to the letters USC, particularly when Lori Lachlan's daughter got accepted into the university under false pretenses. And apparently some people refer to USC, University of Southern California, as the University of Spoiled Children, which uh, this scandal certainly bought into that um, (laughs) deal here. But At the end, there were several parents who were actually given very light sentences, but they were given a criminal record, which will definitely um, inhibit them for the rest of their lives. It will definitely be a black mark on their record. Singer himself currently has not served any prison time, but he does at the moment face up to 65 years in prison and a fine of $125 million. If you watch the documentary Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, you will be incensed. I know I certainly was. And that's actually what a lot of really good documentaries should do. They should maybe not necessarily make you angry, but they should make you care about something, about the state of college admissions in this country, how all students are really not created equal, and also the fact that there are 3,000 colleges and universities in the United States alone, and the competition should not be as intense as it is. But I did like the ending message of this documentary in that it doesn't really matter where you go to school. What matters is that you do try to improve yourself and you do try to get an education. I could go on about my particular college experience and how I am incensed by some of these social media videos, which actually begin the documentary of some of these people who are videotaping themselves opening. I should say, I shouldn't say videotaping. I should say taping themselves opening that college admissions email that says they got accepted. And then they react enthusiastically like they do, or they have all their friends and family over. And what really makes me angry about these kinds of videos is they're obviously staged because either they, they tape them. uh, Let me, let me try to articulate this. They're either staged or if they don't get into the college of their choice, they can easily not post that on social media. That's what I meant to say. So, Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, may not make you feel bad for some of these parents who brought who bought into Rick Singer's uh, scam. I don't feel bad for them at all because when Rick Singer is actually telling them they need to cheat by doing things this way, you shouldn't feel bad for them because he is essentially telling them, I am going to cheat by doing this. Not in those exact words, but you could probably extrapolate those easily based on these live conversations. Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, is a Netflix original. It premiered on the platform on March 17th, and it gets my rating of a knockout. I think that Matthew Modine probably had his best role here 
as a villain. He sold Rick Singer's real life conversations perfectly. And while I didn't think that the documentary uh, should have cut between Matthew Modine playing Rick Singer and the real life Rick Singer speaking on video, for instance, I thought that was a little bit jarring, but I did like just about everything else about this documentary. And also it does what great documentaries should do. Maybe not necessarily make you angry, but definitely make you think. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Seaspiracy. For those of you who are listening to me on my podcast or my radio show, Seaspiracy is spelled S-E-A-spiracy, like the end of the word conspiracy. It's not the best kind of pun, and it is kind of clunky, but it Don't let that fool you as to how good this documentary is. It is about the impact of international fishing on marine wildlife and is directed by a first-time director, Ali Tabrizi. Ali Tabrizi is a 22-year-old, or maybe he's 23 by now, uh, documentarian, and this is actually his first um, feature-length documentary. And he started out actually... Um, let's see. Oh, actually, uh, this is the first one he's directed. He also appeared as himself in a documentary called Vegan 2018, which came out, uh, three years ago, as you might expect, but he has very limited experience in documentary filmmaking besides his appearance in Vegan 2018 and this documentary. Before this documentary, Seaspiracy, he has absolutely no other credits to his name. So he's making his directorial debut, his cinematographer debut, his camera and electrical department debut, his editing debut with this movie. And that is all the more impressive because he certainly tells a great story using real footage as well as some animation to fill in the blanks. And he is very candid with the audience about his reason for making the documentary. He cares a lot about the ocean. He grew up watching documentaries by the likes of Jacques Cousteau and David Attenborough, and he had a fascination with marine wildlife. And he was actually going to make this documentary initially about how plastic that somehow makes its way into the ocean, how they get there, I don't exactly know. I I don't know if people just throw their bottles into the ocean haphazardly or if landfill people who operate landfills throw them in there because there's no other way to get them there. And I think that's what Ali Tabrizi was getting at when he was making this documentary. But as he began to explore more about 
plastic marine debris and uh, fishing around the world, particularly how dead whales and dolphins wash up on the seashore, he began to experience something a little bit greater and far more sinister than just plastic that ends up in the ocean. He begins to see that overfishing, arguably more than sea life getting plastic in their system from plastic debris, is a lot more harmful to marine wildlife. And he also makes a very bold argument, although a convincing one, that the policies of ocean protection organizations, including some high-profile ones like the Earth Island Institute that put the dolphin safe label on tuna fish and the Marine Stewardship Council are not doing enough. And judging from the facts that he presents in this documentary, he's actually right. And he also... This is a very challenging documentary for me because, like him, I also care about marine wildlife, but I also like to eat seafood. I love seafood. I love lobster, shrimp, and even the less expensive stuff like tuna fish. I love seafood. I love it so much. But this documentary argues that even if you eat seafood, and probably especially if you eat seafood, you may be part of the problem. And that is a very tough fact to swallow. I'm not going to get into every single fact that Ali Tabrizi sets forth in this documentary, but he makes a very compelling argument for people not to eat seafood. And there are some subjects in this documentary that talk about the benefits of living a vegan life. They don't get too far into it, but with veganism and vegetarianism, even some people who will not touch um, beef, poultry, or pork, or anything in between, will make an exception with seafood. And this documentary gives us, for lack of a better term, a very inconvenient truth. But it's a truth that very much like the documentary of the same name by Al Gore that came out in 2006 and one was, was one of the biggest documentaries to come out last decade, or excuse me, two decades ago, you can't ignore the facts. And some people will dismiss this as uh, propaganda, but the truth of the matter is the only message or the only type of... Um, shall we say, the only side that Ali Tabrizi seems to be on is that of the marine wildlife. And some of the international fishing practices are not just killing some of the fish that people intend to eat, they also kill other fish that people don't intend to eat. Because the the nets that people cast into the ocean are do not discriminate against one fish over the other. So even some of the tuna companies that have that dolphin safe label may not be completely transparent. They may not mean to catch dolphin in their nets, but when they do, the dolphin dies. And it's not just them being out of, uh, 
being caught in the net. You could even when they're freed from the net, they still have a, a a greater chance of dying than if they weren't caught in the net in the first place. I'm again, I'm trying not to get too far into this, but as I said, some people will dismiss this movie as propaganda, but only because the facts in the movie are really awful. But I think there are some things in this world that are too good to be true, and there are other things that are too awful to be untrue. And as much as I love seafood of many kinds, I may cut back on seafood after viewing this documentary. But it does actually reveal a truth about eating animals in general, not just seafood, that we human beings, not just Americans, but human beings may not like to admit that we as humans are addicted to animals. I'll admit it. I'm addicted to animals. I not only love seafood, I love red meat. I love white meat. I live in a town where barbecue is one of our specialties. So it makes it especially difficult for me. But Seaspiracy is one of those documentaries that should be viewed by just about everyone. And kudos to Ali Tabrizi for making such an informative and gut punch of a documentary as he has at such a young age that he has. This guy is Generation Z. And he has made a documentary that has really made people of all ages think whether they wanted to or not. So Seaspiracy doesn't have a particularly inspiring name, but it gets my rating of a knockout because everything else about the documentary is just about perfect. It's certainly inconvenient. Maybe, excuse me, maybe even more inconvenient than an inconvenient truth. But it must be seen, and seeing this documentary, which is terrifying, particularly about not only the state of the ocean, but the state vicariously of the world, is something that just about everybody needs to see. And whether or not you believe what you see in the documentary is entirely up to you. But again, it's one of those things that seems way too awful to be untrue. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I started out this show reviewing two particularly sobering documentaries. One was Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, and the other one was Seaspiracy. The former makes you rethink the college admissions process and how we're not truly created equal. The other one makes you rethink seafood. I'm going to review my next film, which is a far lighter fare. The movie is a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. It is a British stop-motion animated science fiction comedy film produced by Ardman Animations, which is an Academy Award-winning studio that brought us, in addition to Shaun the Sheep, Wallace and Gromit, 
and also the their only computer-generated animated movie, Flushed Away. And their animated, or rather their CGI animated film, Flushed Away, was only CGI animated because the studios of Aardman Animation burned down while that movie was in production. So they put stop-motion animation aside for a moment and made that film. But now they're back to stop-motion animated children's uh, TV series and also movies. And Shaun the Sheep is a British-German, as I said, stop-motion animated children's television series. And it is actually a spinoff of the Wallace and Gromit franchise. In 2015... Uh, Aardman Animations made the first Shaun the Sheep movie, which actually did pretty well in the United States. It did gangbusters in Britain, and it was nominated in 2015 for Best Animated Feature. A Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, which is also known as Shaun the Sheep Movie 2, has also been nominated for Best uh, Animated Feature at this year's Oscars, even though it was actually released in Great Britain in 2019. But it made its first appearance on Netflix this week. And I have been, actually I'm continuing to review Oscar-nominated movies that I haven't seen yet up until the Oscar ceremonies, and Farmageddon is one of those. So you do not have to have seen the Shaun the Sheep show or the first Shaun the Sheep movie to get this movie or enjoy it. It is told pretty much without dialogue from either the animals who are a bit anthropomorphic or the humans. In fact, there the, the movie takes place in a town called Mossingham, which is in rural Britain. And the farmer is a redheaded, irritated man by the name of Farmer John. And he basically speaks in sound effects. He frequently screams at his dog, Bingo, uh, incoherently. And one day, Farmer John and his dog, Bingo, discover the landing of a UFO and flee from the alien who comes out of it. And on Mossy Bottom Farm, Sean and the flock attempt to pass time with several dangerous activities only for, excuse me, the, um, the, the sheepdog in, on the uh, farm, Mossy Bottom Farm, which is where Sean lives, is named Bitzer. Farmer John and his dog Bingo are supporting characters in this film who, to my knowledge, have not previously appeared in... Um, any Shaun the Sheep um, movies or TV shows. But Bitzer is the name of the dog who is attempting to uh, block Shaun and his sheep friends from having fun. And eventually, Shaun discovers a trail of pizza crusts and encounters the alien that came off of the UFO and was discovered by neighboring Farmer John and his dog, Bingo. And the visitor from another planet introduces herself as Lula, and from the alien Topa. 
And very much like the other characters in this movie, Lula speaks indistinctly. And basically the only coherent thing she says is zoom, zoom. And that immediately reminded me of the car commercial. But other than that, I really did um, enjoy this movie. And eventually Sean and Lula team up to try to get her back to her home planet. Of course, they're having to dodge the farmer who owns the mossy bottom farm, the redheaded farmer who screams indistinctly at his sheep and his dog Bitzer. So he begins to build actually an alien based theme park called Farmageddon based on the fact that a UFO allegedly landed somewhere very close to him. So Sean, the sheep is trying to protect Lula from the ambitious farmer of his, as well as the ministry of alien detection Uh, Their leader, Agent Red, who is a woman who has been obsessed with proving the existence of aliens since seeing two of them as a child, and she is investigating these UFO claims. So I told you a lot about the movie. It's animated incredibly well. I don't think kids are going to be bored by this movie at all, even though it doesn't have any dialogue. And even though Shaun the Sheep doesn't speak at all, he basically just baws. He still has a very distinctive personality. You can tell that he's very well-intentioned as well as inclined to get into some mischief as well. And the dog Bitzer also has a personality of his own as well. It's a very delightful movie. It's animated, as I said, incredibly well, flawlessly given that it's stop-motion animation. And it is proof that even in this age of CGI being arguably the easiest kind of animation. Stop motion animation is not going anywhere anytime soon. Now, this movie is actually the first film that Ardman Entertainment has released since Early Man, which came out three years ago. It actually came out around the same time as Black Panther. And it's directed by Richard Phelan and Will Beecher, who are um, mainstays at the Ardman Animation Studios. And Farmageddon certainly earns its Oscar nomination. I don't know if it's going to win against Soul, because Soul is a great film in and of itself, not just an an animated film. But it certainly earned its nomination, and for me... Farmageddon, the Shaun the Sheep movie, the second one, gets my rating of a knockout. It is an incredibly fun film to watch. There are some very fun um, allusions in this film to other science fiction classics like E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Some of these references will be lost on kids, but those people like myself who get the references are going to laugh pretty hard at how they present themselves. Like, for instance, there's one part where the music from 2001 A Space Odyssey, the main theme, is playing, and a piece of toast pops out of the farmer's toaster so that it looks like a monolith. I thought that was incredibly clever, and it barely scratches the surface of some of the most clever things in a Shaun the Sheep movie 
Farmageddon, but it is well worth watching, and kids of all ages will enjoy watching it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into the movies that are coming out on streaming this coming week. And by this coming week, I mean the week of March 29th through April 2nd, 2021. So let's start with Monday, March 29th on Netflix. The one movie that is appearing on Netflix is one called Mandela Long Walk to Freedom, where Idris Elba joins the ranks of such actors as Morgan Freeman as those that are portraying Nelson Mandela on the big screen. And Mandela Long Walk to Freedom was the last film about Mandela that was released during Mandela's lifetime. And it will obviously remain his last because Nelson Mandela left this earth at the age of 95, granted. Uh, So he lived certainly a long life. But of course, many of us still miss Nelson Mandela. I know that I certainly do. So in a sense, Mandela Long Walk to Freedom was well-timed in terms of its release. How it is as a movie, I don't know because I haven't seen it, but... I will see it on my own time. The only thing is that I won't be able to review it for you because the movie is too old for me to review. As a matter of fact, it came out before I even started hosting this show, uh, which gives you an idea of how long ago that was because I've been hosting this show for seven years. So on Tuesday, uh, March 30th, there is a movie that's going to be appearing on Netflix that's called Seven Yards. This is the Chris Norton story. Let me see if I can uh, look that up right now because I don't have any idea who Chris Norton is. But this is a 2021 film. But despite that, it is not a, a Netflix original. It is a documentary that will inspire you to overcome, or so the tagline says. It took Chris Norton seven years to walk his bride seven yards down the aisle after a life-altering football tackle. Interesting. So this sounds a lot like a similar story to Travis Roy, except Travis Roy never walked again after that terrible injury he sustained at a Boston University football game. But Chris Norton is a former American football defensive back who played Division Three football, interestingly enough, for the Luther College Norse. 
His football career ended in 2010 when he became paralyzed while making a tackle during a kickoff in a game against Central College. So he was probably putting his helmet down when he made that tackle. It's really uh, tragic. But he was given a 3% chance of ever regaining movement below the neck. Oh, man. So he wasn't just paralyzed. He was quadriplegic. Oi. This is a movie I will definitely see. I will do my best to review it for you for next week's show, but I can't exactly um, guarantee that I will. But it is on my list because it sounds like a very inspiring story. There is a Netflix original film that is going to be premiering on Tuesday, March 30th as well. It's called Octonauts and the Ring of Fire. Apparently, Octonauts is a children's TV show. It's animated. And the Octonauts are underwater creatures. And they create a Mantis Shrimp robot. I don't know if that's supposed to be Mantis Shrimp, but S-H-R-I-P. Figure it out for yourself. To save the oceanic creatures from a tsunami and volcanic eruptions in the Pacific Ring of Fire. This looks like a movie that is foreign. I believe it's either Japanese or Korean. Judging from the characters and the way they look, they're probably Korean. South Korean. Because, yeah, North Korea doesn't have a particular prominent uh, movie industry. Despite the fact that Kim Jong-un and his father, Kim Jong-il, were notorious cinephiles and loved American movies at that. But... This is a movie I'm probably going to skip because Octonauts is a children's television show that I have not seen. So I'm going to pass this one up. On Wednesday, March 31st, there is a 2018 film that's going to be appearing on Netflix that's called At Eternity's Gate. This is not a Netflix original, but I'm going to let you know... What it is. Okay, At Eternity's Gate is a movie that I actually have seen, and this is a great film. This is one starring Willem Dafoe, who's playing Vincent Van Gogh. And this is a look at the life of uh, painter Vincent Van Gogh during the time he lived in Arles and Arvois-sur-Ois, France. I know I mispronounced that. Please forgive me, I did not take French. But what's interesting about this film is that Willem Dafoe was 67 years old when he portrayed Vincent van Gogh. And Vincent van Gogh, when he was around that area of France, where he ultimately died, was 37 years old. 30 years younger than Willem Dafoe was when he took on this role. But when you see this movie, you're not going to care how old Vincent van Gogh really was, even if you are an art enthusiast, particularly those who study the classical period. But it is a really good acting performance by Willem Dafoe. I am not going to review this show for you, because, or rather this movie for you, because I've already seen it and it is indeed old. So we're going to move on to April 2nd, and there are actually a couple of films that are going to be premiering on that day. The first one is The Serpent. And this movie stars the Mauritanians Tahar Rahim and, excuse me, Tahar Rahim, 
excuse me, and Doctor Who's Jenna Coleman. The Serpent is inspired by the real-life events of serial con man Charles Sohraj and his girlfriend Marie-Andre Leclerc. While Netflix's latest international crime thriller, thriller Sky Rojo is generating a beehive of buzz, The Serpent is the superior project, a product of the two. And this isn't based on my opinion. This is actually based on what I'm reading about them on the website Observer. But it sounds really cool. It's Shadow and Bone might be ultimately a bigger hit than The Serpent. But that movie is coming out on April 23rd. But The Serpent is a movie I probably will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. There is a movie that's coming out on Disney+, Plus, which is actually a Disney Plus original. It's called Big Shot, and it stars John Stamos, yes, Uncle Jesse from Full House, who plays a guy by the name of Coach Corn, who after getting ousted from the NCAA, is given a chance for redemption with a coaching position at an elite private high school. He soon learns that the teenage players require empathy and vulnerability. Foreign concepts for the stoic coach. Yeah, John Stamos playing somebody who's stoic. I don't know. But actually, Big Shot is not a movie. It is a 10-episode series that stars John Stamos, Jessalyn Gilsig, Yvette Nicole Brown from the great TV show Community, and Richard Robichaw. So the only actor I'm familiar with there is John Stamos. It is a show I might check out, but I can't exactly guarantee that I am going to uh, review it for you for this show. And unfortunately, I have very limited um, information about the movies that are going to be premiering on uh, in April, but I'm going to actually take a look around as I am talking to you. But this is, oh, actually, I found a better website. So let's see what else is coming to Netflix in early April. And if you'll just, uh, I might as well just give you a list of the movies that are going to be appearing on Netflix on April 1st, 2021, and there are many of them. There's the movie 2012, which is a disaster film directed by Roland Emmerich and starring John Cusack. And this capitalized on the uh, Mayan calendar, stating that 2012 would be the last year on this earth and that the apocalypse would come on December 23rd, 2012. And actually, on December 23rd, 2012, I was on an airplane. So I figured that if anything apocalyptic could happen, it would probably most likely be an earthquake or a volcano explosion, and I would at least be safe for the time being up in the air, provided that there was an airstrip on which to land when I got to my destination. But fortunately, very much like Y2K, it was overhyped and nothing ended up happening, and thank God for that. Also coming to Netflix in April 2021, and these are mostly films that are not Netflix originals. There's Cop Out. That was the buddy cop movie from um, 2010 or 2011, I want to say, that stars Tracy Morgan and Bruce Willis. And it was a movie where Kevin Smith notoriously did not get along with Bruce Willis, whose fault that was, I don't know 
uh, whether I'm at liberty to say, but there you go. Friends with Benefits, the sex comedy with Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, which I believe is Justin Timberlake's highest grossing film to date, but it didn't exactly launch his career as an actor, at least not yet. Plus, that movie came out at the same weekend as one of the Harry Potter films, so it didn't really have a chance. Also, Insidious, the original Insidious, which I hear is a legitimately scary movie that very much like other uh, legitimately scary movies like The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity, got ruined by a lot of its sequels. But Insidious will be premiering on Netflix on April 21st. Legally Blonde, the comedy starring Reese Witherspoon that made her an A-lister. I'd seen Reese Witherspoon in a number of other movies before that, but Legally Blonde was her very first one in which she got top billing, and rest assured, she certainly deserved it. And there are a lot of parallels you can draw between Legally Blonde and Private Benjamin. A, A lot of parallels, actually. But the important thing is that Reese Witherspoon was actually genuinely funny in the movie, and there actually were some legal surprises believe it or not, in the film. Not as auspicious a film that's going to be appearing on Netflix is Leprechaun. And I am very surprised that Leprechaun appeared on Netflix in April and not in March. But what a lot of people don't know is that the Leprechaun in the movie Leprechaun is played by Warwick Davis, who is a midget actor who appeared in Willow, and that was probably his highest profile role, Willow directed by Ron Howard in one of his only uh, fantasy movies, but one that was really uh, good, I thought. And Warwick Davis also played one of the Ewoks in Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, and he also played Professor Flitwick in several of the Harry Potter movies. And he's one of those actors who's not exactly a household name, but he's kind of the go-to guy when you want to put a midget in makeup. And he acts very well, no less. Also appearing is uh, Magical Andy's Season 2, a show, so I won't deal with that. The Pianist, which is an amazing film, directed by Roman Polanski, which won Roman Polanski his last Oscar to date for Best Director. And he didn't show up to the ceremonies in 2003 because if he had, he would have been arrested because he's still at large for what he did to a 13-year-old girl in a bathtub in the late 70s. And there's actually a really good documentary about that case of Roman Polanski that actually kind of makes you question Roman Polanski's um, motives as well as the motives of the people who prosecuted and ultimately convicted him. But anyway... The Pianist is a great movie, which also has an Academy Awarding performance in it by Adrian Brody. Unfortunately, Adrian Brody has not appeared in as great a movie since then, but I have the feeling with his acting chops, he has the capability of making a comeback sometime soon. But I think he might have been one of the victims of the uh, Me Too movement. And I'm not going to say exactly whether or not that uh, his being victim victimized was justified or not, but The Pianist was a great movie, and Adrian Brody certainly sold that film. Another film that's going to be appearing on Netflix on April 1st is The Possession, which I don't know anything about. Uh, there's also 
Tursun Jung, the movie. What Tursun Jung is, I don't know. The Time Traveler's Wife, which stars Eric Bana and Rachel McAdams and is based on a book of the same name. Tyler Perry's Medea's Big Happy Family, which I guarantee you I will not see. There's also White Boy, which I also haven't seen. Uh, actually, let me look that one up because I may have seen that. White Boy, that is uh, that is a film. Actually, oh, I, I was thinking of the movie White Boy Rick. That one starred Matthew McConaughey, and that was pretty good. It could have been a little bit better, though. But there is a movie that came out in 2017 that was called White Boy, which stars Richard Wurst Jr. and Scott M. Bernstein. There's also a movie that came out in 2002 starring Johnny Green and James Andronica, but the site I'm looking at right now does not tell me what white boy movie that is, but one thing I do know is that it is not White Boy Rick. That is the movie that takes place in Detroit and stars Matthew McConaughey. Interestingly enough, not as a native of Texas, but as a native of Detroit. But he actually acts pretty well in the film. The, the movie had certainly a lot of flaws to it, but Matthew McConaughey and the guy who played White Boy Rick acted well. Also appearing on Netflix on April 1st is one called Warren Stories, which I assume is an anthology. And also Yes Man. This movie stars Jim Carrey and Zoe Deschanel. And this movie is probably appearing on Netflix to capitalize upon the success of Yes Day, the comedy that stars Jennifer Garner as a parent who for one day does everything her children tell her to do and basically have a family's day out. It's a cute comedy, and I actually thought it was better than Yes Man. wasn't perfect, but Yes Man it was one of those films that I saw it with Jim Carrey in it, and I thought, Jim Carrey is better than this film. He really is. I, I honestly thought that he could have been, he could have chosen a better film, but that is what it is. So what can I say? It's going to be premiering on Netflix on April 1st, so definitely be on the lookout for that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. On April 2nd on Netflix, there are a couple of films that are going to be making an appearance. Some of them, I think, are Netflix originals, but the site I'm looking at right now is not telling me whether or not it is. There's one film that's called Concrete Cowboy, and that actually sounds like a really cool steampunk western but then again just because it has cowboy in the title does not necessarily make it a western but concrete cowboy is indeed a netflix original and it is indeed about cowboys interestingly enough the movie stars idris elba and uh lorraine toussaint amongst other people and an actor i believe is a newcomer whose name is caleb mclaughlin caleb mclaughlin is also a black actor he is only 19 years old, and he actually 
is not exactly a newcomer to acting, but he is somewhat of a newcomer to movies, but he's best known for playing the role of Lucas Sinclair in Stranger Things. And if you don't know who Lucas Sinclair is, he is the only black kid amongst the misfit boys. So for him to actually make his um, near big screen debut with Idris Elba is certainly very impressive. But the movie is actually about him despite Idris Elba getting top talent, uh, top billing. And it is about a teenager who discovers the world of urban horseback riding when he moves in with his estranged father in North Philadelphia. If I were to think of a place where you could learn about horseback riding, Philadelphia would probably be one of the last places I would think. So I was, I was wrong when I said that it was, it was a Western film, or implied that it was a Western film, but it is kind of about cowboys, or at least the people who ride horseback put on cowboy hats, in North Philadelphia. Hmm. I would think that New York City would be, for instance, Manhattan, would actually be a more ideal place to learn about riding horseback, because thanks in large part to Central Park, there are horses in a lot of places in New York more places than one would normally expect. But there are people who ride horseback, not just police officers. And also there are horse-drawn carriages all over Manhattan. But Concrete Cowboy looks like a really cool film. I do like Idris Elba, and I also really like Caleb McLaughlin, even though I didn't recognize his name when I read it off there. But this is a movie I will be seeing, and I will review it for you on next week's show. There is another film that's going to be making an appearance on April 2nd, and this one is Just Say Yes. I would assume, based on the title of it, that it is also a film that is similar to Yes Man or Yes Day. It's about a character who has no choice but to say yes, but it turns out I'm actually wrong. This is a movie about a bride. And it is, it looks like a romantic comedy that's about a wedding. And it it looks like it also follows a disturbing trend amongst 21st century movies about weddings. I.e., it looks like the bride is a bitch. And that is a terrible trend of wedding films these days. But it is about an incurable romantic by the name of Lote, who finds her life upended when her plans for a picture-perfect wedding unravel just as her self-absorbed sister gets engaged. And the poster of the film looks a lot like the poster for Bride Wars. In fact, that's the 2009 movie starring Kate Hudson and Anne Hathaway, which was pretty bad. But the poster for Bride Wars has Anne Hathaway and Kate Hudson holding... Uh, bouquets of flowers and smiling like they're posing for a wedding picture. But this movie, Just Say Yes, uh, doesn't pull any punches when it comes to what the movie's about. It shows two women in gorgeous, elaborate wedding gowns who are about to slug one another. And one of them looks like she's about to break a champagne bottle on the other woman's head. So, Just Say Yes is... Not a Netflix original, but it is a film that is given a release date of 2021. 
This is a movie I'm probably not going to be happy to see, but I am going to see it anyway because it is, after all, a new film. And I do see films, new ones, that I don't necessarily like. That's what makes this show what it is. If I reviewed, if every movie I reviewed I loved, this show would be boring. If every movie's great, then no movie's great. So, Just Say Yes is a movie I imagine I will watch and I will hate. But, anything could happen. But anyway, that is one of the movies that I will review for you for next week's show. I'm not going to like it, but I'll do it. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.